everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Rob Murgatroyd Show. Each week, I have conversations with some of the most fascinating people on the planet that can help you live a life of fulfillment. Speaking of fulfillment, if you want to hire me as your coach, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if we are a good fit to help you create and design your dream life and business. That's robshowcoach.com. Before we get into today's episode, our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind event will be in Dubai and Abu Dhabi for the F1 race on November 16th to the 19th. So look, these trips are designed to get you out of your day-to-day, around some amazing entrepreneurs and provide bucket list experiences that will have you coming home re-energized to grow your business and bring your life to a whole new level. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. All right, let's jump into today's show. This is knowing about how to work with your own inner experience to capture the unfolding, unpredictable present moment. That is the game inside the game, to know how to work with your thoughts and emotions to be on time with the unfolding moment. The modern day fear that is most constrictive to most people is no longer the saber tooth. It's the opinions of others. We are social beings, collaborators. We need each other. And when we put ourselves in vulnerable positions, we have the opportunity to exponentially grow and the opportunity to be kicked out. Michael, welcome to the show. I am so stoked to be here with you. Thank you for including me. You are so welcome. You know, I'm super excited to have you on the show because we all listen to you checking under the hood of people's minds and and see how they tick. So today we get to kind of check under your hood a little bit. So thanks for allowing us to do that. I think there's a couple of wrenches left in there. There's a a couple of screws loose. You know, the mechanics have done a number in here. So (laughs) have at it. (laughs) All right. So I'm going to, I'm really going to take you up on it. We're going to go back to the fourth grade. You remember that time, huh? When I'll I'll give you a little prompt. Your, Your dad got relocated from Virginia and he had to move the family to California. And when you got to California, you're having a little trouble fitting in. And a kid started a fight with you. And he said, I'm going to chew you out. And your mom, your dad, your grandma, you guys are all getting together and you're learning how you could beat this kid up. Do you remember that? Do you remember that time? You've done your homework. Yeah. So I think I've talked about that once. And so nice job bringing back my childhood trauma. (laughs) So I come from today's as the date of recording is St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. And so my heritage is Irish and Italian. And I tend to identify more with the Italian side because of the relationship with my grandfather. And so he was from Sicily. And yeah, how about it? And and then but but the Irish were right in there and they're like, listen, okay, this is in fourth grade. Like, how old are you in fourth grade? I was like, I was young. So I think I was, you're five when you enter. How old are you in fourth grade? Well, my, like, my daughter is seven and she's in second. Yeah. So let's add, let's add a year because I started early. So it's called eight or nine years old. Yep. No, that can't. Is that, is that right? I think it might I be right. So. I think it might be right. Yeah. And so... Okay, okay, son. So this is how you hold your hands, you know, and then and like teaching me how to fight and teach the whole thing, right? And I'm like, really? Am I doing this tomorrow? Yes, you're doing this. Okay. Because I was brand new, right? And it was like, I don't know, a couple, couple days in or a couple weeks into the new school experience with all the kids. And it's like a make or break type of thing. And, and then my grandmother comes into the garage and my dad's like, I'm hitting things with them and he's showing me how to be like aggressive in that way. Looking back, like, what were they thinking, honestly? But then my grandmother comes in, you know, she's the Irish one, and she goes, Okay, you check and make sure he doesn't have rings on. <laughs> because that's how she'd fight. If she was in the yeah, bar, she'd have the she'd have the rings on. Yeah. Well, I think she was like, she was like very clear that she had seen some of the male figures in her life come back like with scars on their face because somebody put a ring on. Yeah. And then she goes, Listen, also, 
And she grabs her two, she takes her two hands and she puts them by her crotch. And she says, you protect yourself here too, because you, you cover, never know. You got to cover the balls. Cover up. <laughs> like, oh my God. So here's, here's the funny part about it. So it's that moment, my heart's pounding. We're in the alley after school. The whole, all of the kids were there. I don't know what the teachers, how the teachers missed this. <laughs> this probably routinely missed it because it wasn't the first time it happened. And I'm there and there's a whole crowd of kids and da, da, da. And we're getting ready to go. And I, over the kid's shoulder, kind of over the crowd, if you will, I can see my my mom and grandmother driving by <laughs> in their car. Oh and they God. kind of paused to make sure everything was okay. And so I was able to at least know that if it went sideways terribly, they were going to be there to break it up. And so... You had your, you had your posse. I had the posse. You had so the posse. We are, we are tribal people. We, you know, we, all we are. We are. But but listen, this this fighting problem of yours got worse. There was David. You remember David? There was another yeah. experience in Southern California with David, but things were different this time with this guy. You interrupted the pattern and you said, dude, let's just stop. And you wound up being surf buddies with this guy. In what ways do you think that that moment in that experience with that guy interrupting that pattern shapes the kind of work that you're doing today? Yeah, I nice job again, Rob. So I it was it was we moved again. My parents had reckless abandon for moving whenever they thought it was right for them, and it was in, moving mid ninth grade for me. So from Northern California to Southern California, and. Um, and so new new kid, new school again, same, almost the same exact playbook. And we're on the on the blacktop and we're squared up. And I, I should say that this was one of the beginnings of the pivot for me. But it was mid-fight. Blood was part of this experience. And I, I felt terrible. So I didn't have that finish kind of mentality, you know, like that that thing was not present in me. And so I pulled back and he, his eyes were white. My eyes were white. I took off my shirt. And I was like, Hey dude, this is stupid. He's like, yeah, brother, thank you. And then we, be, you know, we became great, great friends after that. And how did it change is that it was an awareness that I, I didn't like that. I was fighting for a different reason. I was fighting for out of fear. I was fighting because that's all I knew. I was fighting because I didn't know, I didn't have other resources. But when I was in it, I was actually much more compassionate than somebody that was a complete savage would would recognize. And so, you know, my life is dedicated to helping humans be to flourish, to understand their potential. And that was a beginnings. It wasn't kind of the final step, but it was the beginnings. For sure. Now we mentioned surfing here. Surfing uh, was and is a big part of your life, but particularly during those adolescent years, it was a sport. It is a sport that requires you to really let go. And you've said that you've never did surfing professionally because at that time, the moment that the tents popped up for you and the judges showed up, things started to change. And I think a lot of people feel anxiety about what could go wrong when they're attempting to do something. Where does that come from? And what are some approaches that people can get past when they have that sort of anxiety? Because here you are as a kid, you're out there surfing, doing what you love and it's great. But the moment you have something on the line, the whole game changes. What What is it within the wiring of us human beings that causes that? So I can, I'll speak globally, but then I'll start with a story to set that up is that I, when I was younger, I enjoyed sport. It was fun. Be out there, kind of move around, have an aggressive challenge that's, you know, part of the team and collaboration and competition, all of it kind of mixed together. And at one point I remember saying, what is this? It's artificial rules and like man-made rules and adults screaming at kids. And I did I I I bristled. I was like, this is stupid. This doesn't feel true. And so there was a dissonance between this artificial man-made make-believe setting and then my 
origin roots, which is out in Mother Nature. So I was born, like you mentioned, in Virginia, which was we had lots of land. And there was my parents were laissez-faire parenting, which is kind of hands-off. Mother Nature was my teacher. And so I had to figure stuff out as a, as a really young kid, which I would not advise that. I would not advise that way of experiencing the world, but it taught me so much. And the reason I wouldn't advise it because the, the gamble was high that of injury and of not knowing how to fit into a system. So I bristled when the coaches were yelling and it was likely because there was some critical nature in my family that I was sensitive to. And so loving, kind parents, but a critical nature to others, a critical nature somehow would seep into of me as well. Listen, they're really supportive and kind and all those things, but there was a critical note to it. And so when I was free surfing, great, put me in a high risk situation that felt consequential, even though looking back, maybe it wasn't so consequential, but it felt that way. And it was a forcing function to be fully present and a forcing function to trust, to trust the unfolding moment because each wave is unfolding and you've got to be on time in the right place at the right time. Great lessons for life, by the way. And and then as soon as we would take that experience and bring it into competitive surfing, which now we've got humans. So now we're in this artificial man-made rule thing again with humans on the beach judging, critiquing. That was their job. And then I, I was already sensitive to it. And then I ported it over to friends and family that were there watching as well. Like they must be critiquing. And then I'm thinking about my own experience. I'm critiquing myself. So all of that activity didn't allow the available space for me to focus fully on the task at hand, which is to be present. And so I couldn't do it. I didn't have the mechanisms to know how to compartmentalize, to let go, to call bullshit, to to laugh at it, to wink at it, whatever it was, to absorb myself more in a productive mind, a present and productive mind. I want to just kind of wave my hands and say, this is not about being positive, but this is knowing about how to work with your own inner experience to capture the unfolding, unpredictable present moment. That is the game inside the game, to know how to work with your thoughts and emotions, to be on time with the unfolding moment. And I was I was late to the unfolding moment because my mind was focused 80% of the resources I'm making it up are like, what are they thinking? How's she thinking? What is it thinking? Jesus, I don't know if I can have what it takes. Like, this is crazy. What do I feel? Why do I feel this way? What am I doing out here? And then a wave would pop up and now I'm, I'm a mess. I think most people can relate to what I just said because many of us, well, I think all of us, and that's a huge number I, I recognize, have felt anxiety, whether it was panic crippling in that constricting way or fleeting and temporary. But we felt that overwhelm sense of overwhelmment. And the modern day fear that is most constrictive to most people is no longer the saber tooth. It's the opinions of others. And so the saber tooth tiger long ago had shaped our brains to say, hey, you better figure out how to mobilize if you want to survive. And that mobilization is the fight, flight, freeze mechanism. And the ancient brain has the same cascade of response to the non-saber-tooth tiger threat. And that threat is, what do you think of me? So I have that same and you have that same mobilization to fight, flight, freeze, unfortunately, the freeze, to be able to survive. But it's just another human across the table. Or when I when I was in seventh grade across the dance floor, <laughs> like right, wanting yeah, to go right, dance right. with somebody, right? Like at every stage, there's that that deep fear of not being included, of not being of not belonging, of not being okay, of not being good enough. And if that happens, the ancient brain is like, "Ooh, we might be out on our own." And if we're out on our own, the ancient brain knows that that is way too complicated for survival. To, to be able to hunt, to gather, to, to build a fire, to build a tent, to be able to take care of the family and do it all, it's not possible. So we are social beings, collaborators. We need each other. And when we put ourselves in vulnerable positions, we have the opportunity to exponentially grow 
and the opportunity to be kicked out. Not, not, notwithstanding physical consequences, potentially sometimes too. But that's what it's about. Can you, can you move into those spaces? And, and I, I know you got a question loaded up here, but the idea is, can you move into those spaces and be fully at home with yourself? And when we can do that, we've got a command of our inner experience to be on time in the present moment. That is the psychology of excellence. Hey, it's Rob. I wanna jump in and take a quick second to say you gotta get a coach. It just makes a difference. A coach can offer you perspective and accelerate your goals so much faster. If you wanna work with me, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application and we'll jump on a call. All right, let's get back to the show. Well, that was amazing. Why is it so difficult for us to step into presence? We don't practice it, first and foremost. But our brain is the fun, the fundamental function, a fundamental function of the brain is survival, which means that we need to scan our external world to identify potential threats. We have two routes of information that come into our brain, the high road and the low road, which you're familiar with. The high road goes up into the thinking part of the brain, and the low road goes straight into the emotional part of the brain, the amygdala and the limbic system. The low, so, so I'm observing you and you're observing me in this moment. We're both processing information into both parts of our brain. So the information that's coming into me is going up into my thinking brain and my emotional brain. The important part of this is the emotional brain. It's happening twice as fast. So the data is flying in twice as fast to the emotional brain. Why is that? Because we need to be on it to survive. We need to mobilize within two seconds. If I think you're a threat, I need to be on my game because listen, there's dangerous conditions in the world. So it's a luxury that we've got both of these things working at the same time. If we don't condition ourselves, guess what happens? That low road wins. The brain does its job and it's scanning. And it's better to err on the side of caution. Like, wait, he just tilted his head that way. Is that a threat? Mm. I think so. I think it might be. His eyebrows haven't moved. Oh, they're kind of low. Is that, is he thinking or is he pissed off? Wait, what's happening? It's better to err if you're not conditioned of your mind. It's better to err on the side of threat detection, right? The, the bumbling kind of, hey, everything's okay. They, those people got swooped up by lions long ago, you know, like, so, so it's better to err on that side. Now, if we work and we invest in our psychology, we start to be able to understand the levers. And it's a bit like, you ever seen a cat? I don't know where this analogy has come from. You ever seen a cat play with a mouse? So mm-hmm. it's obviously, it's going to eat it. Yeah. <laughs> and it brings it around a little bit. And then it, it holds its tail and lets it go. And before it can scurry under the baseboard, it grabs it again, drags it back. So that is, it's an interesting analogy I'm working through right now with you that that's a little bit how it feels to be able to have command of your inner experience that you get to play more. And it's not like threat. It's just the, there's the, there's space and uh, there's levers and dials. And it's kind of like a master composer that can kind of turn up this part of the orchestra and tune this one down. And, you know, and so it feels that way when you invest in your inner life. So when you're in that space of presence, are you gaining access to more intuition as an example, things like that? Okay. So you, you're on it because we hear about in athletes, we'll hear like from broadcasters, like, you know, choking or micro choking. They don't call it micro choking, but there's a difference. There's levels to it. I sound like a rapper, but, but there's levels to it. And what's happening is that they're choking off access to the available internal resources. When you have identified either non-consciously or consciously a threat that your body is mobilizing. So it constricts access to things that it's determined isn't quite necessary for this survival moment. 
What does that mean? It means you've just choked off access to thinking creatively, to adjusting using intuition. So there's a thing that happens underneath the surface that is more resources are allocated for survival than thriving, than you know, doing something brand new in a particular moment that is called for. And so this is why we have to, one, in, invest in our inner life. And then two, practice being present in calm environments, in noisy environments, in rugged environments, and then all the way up into high consequence environments. We, we have to practice it. And so here's a simple little way that maybe you, you might find useful for it. Okay, first, nothing rivals, nothing rivals introspection, looking within to understand how thoughts and emotions work together uniquely for you. Nothing. There is no competitor to it. And so I say that because I'm going to give you something very pithy, right? Which is when I wake up in the morning, I've got a morning mindset routine that I go through that's very short, very, very specific. And the last part of the four steps in the morning that I do is I just stand right where I am and 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 practice my mind and my body being at the same place at the same time. That's being present. So it's just a fraction of a second sometimes, or it's just a few moments at the upper limit, practicing being present in a very calm environment. So that's one way that you can practice it without being very sophisticated about it even. That last step, that fourth step that you said, where you're, you're standing there with your mind and your body together, Let's drill down just for a second. Like, is it just a moment where you're just listening to the sounds in the room, or like, walk me through how you do that? Yeah, that's one way. I think I could. I think I could maybe calibrate with you. Do you? Do you? Or have you had a mindfulness practice? Yeah, I I do twenty minutes of the morning pages where I dump mm. everything for three pages until mm. I run out of gas. The first page looks like uh, Jeffrey Dahmer wrote it. Like I get all the crazy out of my head, you know? Second page, mm. some insecurities come out. And then the third page, I start running out of steam. And so I sort of shake the, the, the dust out of the carpets and empty the cash a little bit. And that helps me into creativity. From there, I will do about 22 minutes of transcendental meditation, which mm. helps me get present. And then from there, I review my goals for the day and I choose top five, my top five outcomes I want to work on for the day. That's kind of my so you do about an hour training before sometimes, you... Sometimes, sometimes longer, but yeah, about an hour. Yeah. So your question, the reason I asked, because your question is at one level, very sophisticated. And at, one, and at another level could be just like very intuitively creative. So when you are doing that work and transcendental meditation has a mantra involved. It does. And the mantra, your mantra is by default, a present focused, a single point focus is what yes. you're doing. So you're focusing to your best abilities, all of your essence, all of your mind's attention and strength on just one thing. That's right. So that is um, the practice of being present with one thing. So you've got it. Now, if you want to do something a little bit more mm, casual, uh, instead of like a 20-minute TM protocol, yep. yeah, you could just you could sit up right now and just listen to the most obvious sound in the room and just focus all of your focus on that. And then maybe if you want to take it a little further, go to the second most obvious and the third most obvious, or you could just focus on your breath, you know, like the way it feels inhale or exhale, or you could quite simply just kind of feel or scan your body. And so there's lots of ways to do this. You can practice it. I think it's a great way to do it is you practice by deep listening and mm -hmm. just listen. When you listen to somebody and you're listening to the words and you're trying to identify the feelings. So my, my intimate circles that I run in, it's an easy running joke like, Mike, I already told you this. I told you this last week. And I go, 
Yeah, I know, but I'm I'm listening for two things, and so sometimes I'm the details it, are not. I don't code the details because I'm trying to get to the essence. So details kind of just it's almost like they bounce off like some weird mechanism that they don't get coded for me all the time because I'm working to go right underneath to say what what's the heart part of this what's the emotional part of this how does this map to their life their life adventure both historically and future based and all of that underneath is far more interesting to me you know than boy meets girl you know boy and girl walk up the hill you know the old jack and jill kind of thing like God, far more so- interesting That's so good because when you think of deep listening, one would assume without that definition that what deep listening is gaining all of the facts, but that is not what you're after. You're after the story under the story under the story with the emotion, et cetera, what you just described. Really interesting. Okay. So shifting gears a little bit, tell me who Gary de Blasio is. Gary, Gary de Blasio is arriving at my home today. I have no. physically, yeah, I haven't physically seen him for years. He's on on one coast, I'm on another. But Gary's been a mentor of mine since I was 15, and so oh, what a what an important relationship and a gift he's given to take the seat of being a mentor. And it's the gift of being seen, like really seen, and. You know, oftentimes we talk about this world of high performance and what are the best kind of practices. I, I will absolutely tell you, if I could say my experience of being working to be my best on a regular basis, it's my wife, it's Gary, it's the people who, um, with all of my oddities, go, yeah, you're, you're special, dude. Like, Oh, that part of you? You're struggling that part of you? Yeah, me too. You know, like, or you're struggling there? Okay. How do you want me to show up for you? Like, yeah. Okay. And they and it's just this sanctuary built around the relationships of people who have had the discipline, the interest, the patience to to see into another person. And that's that's my wife has done that for me since I was 16. And Gary, since I was 15, it's awesome. It's an incredible, incredible gift. So he's my guy. He's coming out today. We're spending a couple of weeks together. And uh, cool timing that you bring him up. That's so crazy that I brought him up. Okay, mm-hmm. so let's get a definition. What is a sports psychologist and what does a sports psychologist do? It's a cool question. Okay, so psychology is the study of human behavior, which includes thoughts and, and behaviors. And then... Sports psychology was born out of studying how the greats work. Like, what is the psychology of excellence? And so I started in traditional psychology. And I was like, wow, this is fascinating. This inner inner experience that is inv- invisible, but materially important to the human condition. I loved it. I started my master's degree in taking it a step further. Semester one, I was like, what are we doing? We're studying all the things that are like about illness and like, what? whoa, what am I doing? And so I dropped out. And then it was Gary that was like, yeah, you know, you don't quite have that tolerance, you know, or the patience to listen to people complain is what he, he, he framed it that way to me. And that's kind of how I was feeling about traditional psychology. Like when I was thinking about going what happens in that therapeutic relationship. And listen, I was 20 some years old. I didn't know what I was, what, what was up and what was down. And so then I started studying the psychology of excellence through sports psychology and I felt at home. And come full circle, it's not complaining. It's, it's creating a sanctuary to, to understand the self-discovery of who a person is and who they want to become. So there is some people that go to therapy to complain and there are you know, the other side of the spectrum that people are fully invested in becoming their very best and they're kind of leaning forward on their front foot, if you will. And so sports psychology is the study of excellence. And then what do the extraordinaries practice and how do they think? And from a psychological perspective, to be able to work with pressure, to work with stress. And then, so I spent a lot of time in sport and I'm equally fascinated about how that ports over 
to arts and how it ports over to business and how we can democratize that. This is a big part of my life effort to democratize those best practices and insights from the mountaintop to the masses. You know, like how do the best and the best do it? I think there's a responsibility that I feel comes from within, you know, like it's self, it's self-made, a responsibility that I feel to share those practices at scale in the best ways that I can. So that's sports psychology is that's the field. And then the practice is working with people on how to enhance the psychological skills that are required to meet the demands of any moment. And that's more concretely, it's like practicing confidence, practicing being calm, using your mind and your imagination to see and feel exactly who you'd like to be you know, in the future. It's having routines and clear goals and it's a self-discovery process to be rock solid on who you want to be, having clear values in place to be able to make decisions to bump up against those values because you can win lots of ways. You could hire hitmen. You could poison poison the you know the the competitors. You could you know like there's lots of ways to win, and so it's being clear about the values that you want to win with. And then, well, listen, and then Nancy it, Nancy Kerrigan got the uh, the wrong side of that. So we you know I, I, it's certainly possible, right? Oh yeah, like that that happens. <laughs> you that, know, ha- so that happens. I can't say like so. I was working with a professional team, and over the course of ten years, traveling on the road with them. In the course of 10, nine years, we, let's say probably about, probably about seven times, somebody has pulled the fire drill, knowing at the fire alarm, knowing that we were there, <laughs> you know, like, so we would have to get up at three in the morning and all of us, the whole, the whole hotel and all the athletes and coaches and staff are pulled out on the street, fire alarm going off. And it's somebody on the other side that's going, Hey, I know how to get an advantage. Yeah. Oh my so there's lots God. Of ways to win. God, yeah. that's crazy. I have never listened to anybody that is more curious than you in my life at digging under the hood in somebody. And I, you know what, if I'm listening to your show, I I'm I'm counting in my head three, two, one, here it comes. And then I'll hear, all right, I'm gonna pull on that thread. Just a li- and I know it's coming because I because I can hear the person saying it, and it's almost like you're incapable <laughs> of letting it go by without going stop, <laughs> hold on, <laughs> hold on, and I, you know listen, you do it with such love that people let you do it. But I'm curious to know who's the one. Well, actually, let me ask the question a different way. The person that we think about who is in the zone is Michael Jordan, right? He's the guy that is flying through the air and everybody everybody compares. When you saw, and I'm assuming you watched his documentary, were you going, oh, now I get it. Now I see. Was there any ahas that were popping up when you watched that doc? I've never met Michael Jordan, but what I watched was familiar from the people that I know that know him well. So it wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't feel jarring, but it did, it did strike a chord that I was very clear that from a distance. And I mean, I'm happy to be wrong here because I don't know him, but boy, the cost. The, the real cost to his sense of peace and happiness has been corrupted by his need for winning and being the best. And so uh, there's, a, there's a sadness. You, uh, you've probably heard me talk about the dark side yeah. of pursuing high, high performance or potential or whatever adjective we put in there. But yeah, I, 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 I see that that part of him is there. And I'm sure like all humans, we are multidimensional, you know, like we're complicated humans. But so that's the side I see when I watch that documentary. I don't, I didn't walk away going, I'm fired up. Let's go. I walked away going, oof. That's gotta be painful. 
Yeah, that's got to be yeah. painful. So, yeah. okay, so to that end, when you're working with somebody like you, you know, you famously, are you still working with the Seahawks? No, my last year was two years ago. Okay, I want to jump in for 15 seconds and say if you're an entrepreneur grinding away and not taking time to experience extraordinary things around the world with other entrepreneurs, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind to Dubai on November 19th. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. Okay, so you famously worked with the Seahawks. When you were in that world, you're working, my words, not yours, you're working for these two millimeter differences, right? Because these are some of the best athletes in the world, right? You're just trying to get them a little bit better than, than where they are. Are there certain things that you are looking for globally within to make them better? And more specifically, the lens of the question is, what's the point of doing this if you're not going to be happy? Like they they want to win games, but you also want them to be excited and joyful and in a happy place, opposite to what we all sort of saw, saw in that in that documentary. How do you? I guess the question is, how do you work with them to step into joy and fulfillment while having the cutting edge simultaneously? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we used to think. 15 years ago, that there was a phrase in elite sport, which was high performance begins where health ends. Mm. And I was like, yeah, I think that's true. And so unfortunately, I swallowed that hook too. And I knew better, but I didn't, I, I didn't follow that. And as even I'm saying it now, it like makes me sick to think about some of the influences I've had over the last 25 years of world's best where I over-indexed on high performance because that's what they said they wanted and under-rotated on joy and happiness to your to your point. So how do you? Well, first order of business is they have to invite you in. And so there's an invitation. And that invitation is... I consider it to be sacred. Now, the invitation comes in two ways, right? There's an invitation like, hey, can you come to the party? And then that's where I'm going to sniff you out. So there's that invitation. And I'm using party as a metaphor. You know, it's like chit chat, hall, hallway conversations, right? Yep. And then, then there's the, the second invitation, which is like, wow, you know what? Can we spend a little time together? Yeah. So once that happens, that there's a there's a sacred nature to it. And this is coaching in general from a tactical standpoint. And I say that because I've learned a lot from great coaches. Now, once we go from hallway and we go into a little bit more of a sanctuary, the questions are revolve around like who are you? And who are you working to become more often? And what are your natural strengths? And you know, and there's all types of ways to get at the self-discovery process. What are your core first principles? And, and then from that, we start to go, okay. And I, I love thought stems. I love hypotheticals as a way to the Socratic method. And thought stem hypotheticals are like this fun method that I enjoy working behind the scenes mm-hmm. because there's forcing functions in thought stems and hypotheticals about like, well, how about this? Does that sound right? Or how about that? Is that, is that what you're saying? And then people will tell you all the time, no, I don't want to win by poisoning my competitors. Oh, okay. All right. So it's not win at all costs because you just said that. Right, 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 right. Well, what if it's winning with... Um, and you don't have a relationship with your your kids because you you've poured all in. Like... Where does that fit for you? And they're like, oh, yeah, damn, maybe I shouldn't have had kids. Okay, let's talk about that. Or, you know what? My my wife and my wife has my back, and this is I'm gonna make the sacrifice right now. Okay, all right. How do you want me to help there? And so it's like really understanding the inner dynamics and conflicts that the person's working through. Because we people are smart in elite sport. There's no dummies, and they know what to say. 
they've actually been trained on the marketing side. So it's working right below the marketing mind once they invite you into that sanctuary to really understand and then see the see the strengths, amplify the strengths, and at the appropriate time, shore up some of the the weaker links. So you're th- th- this is all making perfect sense to me because they all have the same thing that they want. They want to win. They want to win the game, but you're going beneath the surface and you're uncovering and unlocking those things that are lying dormant in there and using it as fuel to help them to accomplish what it is that they want. I love the analogy of winning at all costs and poisoning somebody because they don't. So they're saying one thing, but they're actually meaning another. When you're working with somebody, do you is each person completely different when you get under the hood in what mm. motivates them, how to help them, et cetera? Yeah. I mean, you know, the old genetic, not old, but the well-accepted genetic principle at this point in time is that 99.9% of humans are the same. It's that 1% that's uniquely different and it makes all the difference. And so, yes, each person is uniquely different. Now I say that with some context, with an asterisk, which is the half percenters, they're more similar than dissimilar independent of gender, independent of sport, independent of area of expertise, whether that's art, business, or whatever. They are more similar than dissimilar. And and at the same time, they are uniquely themselves. So at one level, I've spent... Or early... Let me say it more clearly. Early in my interrogation from a scientific standpoint, and then in high-stakes, high-pressure consequential environments, I wanted to understand the individual at in an artistic who, who is a true artist of human potential, who are changing the way we understand potential across the globe. And right now, I've reallocated my resources and interest to, to say those insights and practices, and I want it from an N of one truly a mold of one that are incredibly rare because of what they've how they've expressed it to say how do we do that at scale and the small scale was instead of working with one athlete in professional sport how do we work with a whole organization and then taking that insight and porting it over to big business and what are the 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 the, the binding threads that humans have can we get those base rocks in place as a, as a foundation to be able to help people go to the next step, which is like, okay, once we have our base rocks in place, how do we move into that next place of working with stress in an effective way so that we don't constantly feel like we're just barely keeping up? Right. And then get into that true th- thriving space where across an organization, people are like, expressing themselves in creative ways while still handling and managing you know the 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 more mundane tasks yeah and it's so it's that unlocking at scale that I'm more interested in now than this bespoke artistic and of one that each one of us has well yeah because you've done you've done that for so many years that now yeah. now you know the you know the Malcolm Gladwell would call it like thin slicing like you can do it now you can figure out how to do it at scale i want to ask you one more end of one question though and that is about okay, feel but, but, by the way it's fascinating the end of one is like fascinating it, it's so, so I, i'm all i'm all into okay because, cool all right cool yeah. Cool. Well, this one, this one is just beyond anything that I, I could ever imagine. And that's Felix Baumgartner. So this guy goes up into ostensibly space, 127,000 feet, land, does a free fall and lands in New Mexico. And, you know, this is somebody that you had to coach through fear of doing something that nobody has ever done before, experiencing a double sonic boom. And by the way, on the way down, we don't know whether or not his limbs are going to fall off. How in the world do you 
coach somebody through said fucking crazy experiments. Like, how do you do that? Yeah, keep you up at night. Yeah, so good science, just leaning on good science and informed consent means a lot in this statement. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, Felix, want to do this? Yeah, I really want to do this. You're clear that the brightest minds in aerospace can't sign off on this thing in anything that seems reasonable. I, I understand. You know, so it's like that part, but it's good science because fear is fear. Humans are the 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 physics of the human is at some level pretty mechanical. And it then at a very complicated way, we don't even understand how one cell works. So I'm taking lots of liberties with what I'm saying here. Like we honestly don't know how one cellular structure deeply works. The the mechanics of it are beyond. So I'm saying that there's always leaps of faith. And so there was there was a leap of faith here as pun, well. Pun, pun intended. Yeah. And and this one though was consequential. And he was in. I had good science that that I could leverage from hundreds of years of research-based psychologists that were saying, hey, here's how we know fear works for most people. And so bet on these. And so that that was kind of it. And it did require some innovation and creativity, the the two of us with the team. So there's a fun part of the story. There's a documentary. There's been a couple of documentaries of the work we've done, but there's one that's coming soon, which is it's going to be like a, an actual movie, not a documentary, but an actual movie, which will be fun. But there was a moment when the team said, all right, Gervais, we've been working on this project three, four years, and it's now just screaming halt. We've never seen anybody come back. No offense. We, with all due respect to who you are and what you've done, we're not having blood on our hands. So what are you going to do? Like convince him? <laughs> you know, and, and so it was a real moment for the whole team to square up our shoulders to say, right, this, there's, this is science. There's no voodoo chemistry charisma thing that is going to enable him to have the internal skill set to manage the most hostile space on the planet, almost off the planet. And so we just, as a team, innovated a set of gates that all of us needed to work through to be able to have a level of collective confidence that he's got a better than we would imagine chance to be successful. So I say all of that in saying one of the most electric parts of being part of that project is being part of the team. And that part was really important. What was going through your mind when you watched him take the leap? It was, it's indescribable. I've, I've been asked to comment on it a lot and obviously I'm processing it and I, I'm still... I don't have the framework to share the emotions, but I can say it this way. It was everything. It was all the emotions, right? It was, it was elation. There was crazy worry that was happening. And then within handfuls of seconds, there was five very dangerous points of this mission. Um, one was 500 feet, just getting off the ground at 500 feet. If something goes wrong at 500 feet, he's going to fall in a capsule that the team built with this big balloon. And if you fall anywhere, any human falls from 500 feet, we got problems. So 500 feet was actually one of the danger zones. The second danger zone was if the the gas exchange in the capsule was dysregulated. And he was responsible for that regulation of oxygen. That was a problem. A second problem was that maybe the door wouldn't open at that atmosphere because um, it was a man-made door. Like, you know, customized completely for this capsule. If he couldn't get it open because it was too cold or whatever, that would be a problem and he couldn't get out. The next danger zone would be if he went into it, as he got out, if he were to hit a flat spin. So when he jumps, if for some reason in near zero gravity, he started to spin off access that, and he goes into a flat spin where he's spinning, 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 that all the blood would rush to his head and to his feet. He would land, but he would land potentially his brain being compromised. And then the obvious is that as he passed through the sonic boom, which you mentioned earlier, and in that sonic experience, as he passed through the second sonic boom, the brightest minds in aerospace weren't sure if his arms were going to be ripped off and his legs be ripped off because the body's traveling at one speed, the arms are traveling at another speed, what would happen there? And so seconds into the leap, there was 
there's two more danger zones. Sure enough, he went into a flat spin. Oh. So there was 20-some in, in, the, in the, what's it called? Mission control. 20-some folks in mission control. And it was, it was the, one of the most intense moments watching somebody that you love, that you supported, things go terribly wrong. And he only had about six seconds to fix it. But he's never been, no human has ever been in that situation to fix it. There's no gravity. You can't stick your arm out to, as a skydiver would know to do, if you stick your arm out, it would could rotate you in a deeper spin. So this is like this moment where I wasn't breathing right. I couldn't feel anything. There was a numbness, but there was definitely a sickness underneath that was taking place. And this is like one Mississippi, two Mississippi, yeah. three and he's spinning. And so talking to Felix afterwards, and this is public, I'm not sharing something that wasn't public. He's, he, how'd, how'd you do it? And how'd you get out of it? And he said, all I could hear was my coach's voice. How cool is this, dude? Keep your arms in, put your head down. So which is totally counterintuitive, totally counterintuitive. And it's like skiing. If you're going too fast down a hill, you want to pull back to slow down. If you're downhill skiing in snow, it's like the worst thing. Now you're completely out of control. So he heard his coach's voice, head down, arms in. And so he did it. And he had like two seconds left, pulls himself through it. And it was an eruption. I mean, this eruption inside the mission control that was like, oh my, like, oh. And we're still not out of the woods. Because now, you know, he's traveling at almost a thousand miles an hour. You know, Mach speed or a close, he's approaching Mach one, which is that's when the sonic boom would take place. So, long, long, windy road to say there was nausea, excitement, relief, joy. Those are the big ones uh, that were part of it. Man, uh, you are one of these guys where I could literally like hold you down by the shoulder and say, you are not leaving. I have so much more I want to ask you. Oh, you're a legend. Uh, Thank you. But but I'm not going to do that. As we wrap up, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions that may seem like, why is he asking me these questions? So just roll with it. What do people often get wrong about you? Yeah, cool question. I, I think it's probably... I thought about this. I've thought about this a lot. I don't have a great answer, and I'll, I'll, I'm going to give you an answer, but I'm going to preface it with this first. If you can, I yeah. take some space here. Of yeah. course, yeah. Is that I was so constricted by what other people thought of me at such a young age that the way for me to work through that is to love other people and and not attend. To what they think of me. And so to, to pour love into them and to hydrate the human I want to be. So at some level, I, I really don't know. Like I really don't know. But what if I if I just rotate the question a little bit, what do I hope people would think? I hope people would see something in me that is true to them and it wakes that part of them up that they want to have more of. Oh, so it's not about it's not about me. It's about what is what is the mirror that just by being my best that I can try to be, what bounces back to them that they metabolize and go, you know, and it could be it could go two ways. Like he speaks too slowly. And you know what? I need to work on speaking faster. Or or he's to this and I want to rotate the other way. Or it's like, I love the the, the cadence. And then like, you know, how do I find that cadence for me? So it can go either direction. And yeah. at some part, it's just trying to be my best beacon. And Got then it. I, yeah, so it's a, it's a lame way to answer it, but... No, it's good. It's honest. It's honest. Yeah. Yeah. What new behavior or habit has most improved your life? Listening to books while walking. And so, yeah, podcasts and listening to books. I, I found at one point in my life, like, I wanted to read everything about as much as I could, but it was pulling me away from like doing the thing because I was reading the thing. And so I, I walk my dog. It's a couple mile walk that I find myself on. And I, I love just getting lost in podcasts and books. And so that, that's a habit I've really appreciated. 
What's an unusual or absurd thing that you love? Unusual thing that I love? I, I, like chocolate and peanut butter. <laughs> Maybe it's not so unusual, but it's like, I think it's the sweet tooth pretty good. <laughs> so. Yes, it, it, it works. I, that's, it, it did really well for Reese's. If you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? I, I feel a calling to two places, New Zealand, uh-huh. which I have not been yet, and Portugal. Yeah. And uh, the reason, Port- yeah. So the reason Portugal is because of Magellan. And uh, Magellan's been a mentor of mine <laughs> yeah. for a long time. And obviously, he doesn't know it, but I, I feel a calling there. And then New Zealand, from the respect of and connection to heritage that that company rep- or country represents to me. So the lineage and the heritage. Also, Northern Ireland is not one of them, but the the respect I have for Ireland and Italy for heritage. And these are all West-based countries. I'm less familiar with the, the Eastern Bloc. What do people never ask you? But you wish they did. They never asked me this, but I wish they did. Tell me about your relationship, your most intimate relationship with your wife. Because that's at the center of how I am, I've become who I am. And so I think we, we, it's not really a, it's the, it's the core, it's the core. And so I think that that part is really important because it allows me to be propped up when I can't be propped up and allows me to, you know, pursue the artistic life based in science in ways that I could never do alone. Man, that's so good. Last question. What one question would you like to ask me? We'll change it up. Yeah. Okay. It's a pretty simple question that I love asking most people, right? Which is, what are you really searching for? It's a great question. I'm sure everybody says that as soon as you say that question. I am searching for finding that sweet spot for me between achievement and fulfillment. There have been times in my life where I have been all about achievement. And I've ignored my wife, my children, my body, etc. And there have been times where I have been all about fulfillment and I'm spraying champagne in Ibiza and not giving a care in the world to business. And I've paid the price for that. And finding the balance between truly stepping into fulfillment, which is one of the reasons why we moved to Italy. Like last night, I had dinner with some new Italian friends. And I had an American couple from Seattle who came in to to have dinner with us. And we commented today that the entire conversation, not one part of that conversation was, what do you do for a living? And let's talk business. It never happens. We talked about wine olive oil, food and food, and then more food, but none of that. And so stepping into that world of fulfillment is is the answer I would give you and balancing that. Does that make sense? I love it. Yeah. Cool, man. That's really cool. And then you'll be a great coach of that when you understand it more or you're a great coach of it now in the search of it. That's what the book is. That's what the book that I thought I was going to write, but I realized that I need more time to bake and more time to understand. I'm in discovery right now. I'm journaling it. So, so I will, we'll do a part two and I'll, I'll tell you what I figured out. Yeah, man. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Thank, thank you for including me. Of course. This is so awesome. Maybe you can tell me a little bit now before we leave on what you're doing with it. You talked a little bit about the new business. And I, is the new business the Forever Consulting? Win Forever we're Consulting? Going, yeah. No, we're, we're going through a branding exercise right now. And so you can find everything that we're doing on findingmastery.net. And okay. we've basically taken two companies, a media company, which is Finding Mastery, to tell stories of, of the extraordinaries. And there's lots of media projects we've got through the, the podcast being one of, of many. And then on the other side, we've got a, the democratization of mental skills and psychological skills across corporations and across individuals at scale. And so that company 
the origins was Wooden Forever, but then it got rebranded to Compete to Create. And now we're going through a new rebranding. So you could go to compete to create.net if you're interested in the organizational offering. But everything can be found at findingmastery.net. And really what we're doing is we're working with senior leaders in companies to figure out how to bring the psychology of the experience across the entire company. And so, you know, what does that mean? It means people are working as hard as they can in, in big business. And the great resignation is met by people saying, I'm not doing it like this anymore. And so there's an investment. This new era of work is an investment in that right balance between autonomy and purpose and accountability to the, to the collective team and how to help people be their very best together. Yep. And that's, that's what we're doing at scale, hopefully well. <laughs> and so you know, we've been able to, to participate with some really thoughtful, important leaders. Amazing. This was so good. Thank you for doing it. Man, Rob, I appreciate you. Thank you again. You got it, brother. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.